welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott. Born in 1921, he was well known throughout the world for his writings and godly influence in the global church. He founded Langham Partnership in response to the growing needs he heard from churches and pastors in the majority world. He was an avid bird watcher and photographer, taking his binoculars and camera with him on all of his travels. He saw nearly 2,700 of the world's 9,000 species of birds. He even published a book, The Birds Our Teachers, illustrated with his own photographs. He was an honorary chaplain to the Queen from 1959 to 1991. John Stott was a pastor to pastors, a servant of the global church, and an author of more than 50 books. Today, referencing 1 John 4.19, John Stott presents a study on love. Well, we come to the end today of this mini-series of sermons on what are commonly called the theological virtues, that is, faith, hope, and love. Paul brings these three together in several parts, several places in his uh, letters, as we probably know, but especially in 1 Corinthians 13, which was read to us just now. All three of these, we're told, remain, but the greatest of these is love. Now everybody knows, whether Christian or non-Christian, everybody knows that love is the greatest thing in the world. Living is loving. And without love, our personality disintegrates and dies. As the 16th century poet Robert Southall wrote, not when I breathe, but when I love. I live. One surprising person who, has, who explored this was Bertrand Russell, the well-known atheist, philosopher, and mathematician. And he was very concerned to protest against the dehumanizing influences of the technocracy. And in its place, he was seeking all the time to discover love. I want to quote from one of his uh, lectures that he gave, I think, in the 1940s, some time ago, on this topic. He was speaking of the danger of human beings turning into the cogs of a machine. In time, he writes, men will come to pray to the machine, almighty and most merciful machine. We have erred and strayed from your ways like lost screws. We have put in those nuts which we ought not to have put in. And we've left out those nuts that we ought to have put in. And there is no cogginess in us. And Russell goes on, this really will not do. The idolatry of the machine is an abomination. And even, he said, the modern diabolism. Then he went on in this extraordinary way. The root of the matter is a very simple and old-fashioned thing. A thing so simple that I'm almost ashamed to mention it for fear of the derisive smile with which wise cynics will greet my words. The thing I mean, please forgive me for mentioning it, 
is love. Christian love or compassion. He goes on, if you feel this, you will never know the deep despair of those whose life is aimless and void of purpose. Well, it's amazing to hear that from the pen of the great Bertrand Russell. Now, you and I, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, know why love is the greatest thing in the world. And the reason is that God is love in his innermost being. So when he made us in his own image and likeness, he created us with a capacity to love and to be loved. And he intends us as human beings to find ourselves and our true nature in loving. Now with that brief introduction, I would like to ask you to turn to my text, which is in the first epistle of John, chapter 4, verse 14. We love because he first loved us. Now in the older English versions, the text reads, we love him because he first loved us. But in the Greek sentence, the verb has no object. It is just a great, grand affirmation that if we belong to Jesus Christ, love is our major characteristic. So we love. Our being and our behavior should together be impregnated with love. I hope we will become convinced about this, at least at the end of our thinking together this morning. So I want to ask you to consider with me the implications of my text. We love because he loved us first. Well, our first uh, remark must be that we love, we love, we love God. Love for God is our most essential orientation. We want to love him with all our being, and we want to prove our love for him in our obedience. Moreover, we love him because he loved us first. I venture to say that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is the greatest love story in the world. It tells us of a God who is love, who created us to be the objects of his love, who when we rebuffed his love, refused to stop, refused to stop loving us because his love is unconditional and he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to die for us. And he pursued us even to the desolate agony of the cross where he took our place, he bore our sin, he died our death. Truly this is love. Look back in your text, if you will, to verse 10, 1 John 4, verse 10. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be an atonement, atoning sacrifice or propitiation for our sins. Now it is this great love of God in Jesus Christ which if we're truly Christian people has captured our hearts. We love him because he loved us first. 
And it's at the cross that we ourselves have been humbled, broken, and then remade. We love God. Oh, I hope that that is true of everybody here, that we love God and want to love him with all our being. Now, secondly, we love our neighbor. This time I'd like you to turn back a chapter to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16. John writes, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for others and even share with them our material possessions. For he goes on, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need and does not put what he has to what he sees and relate the two, then how is the love of God manifest in him? In other words, the true definition of love is not to be found in a dictionary. The true definition of love is to be found at Calvary. It's there we learn that love has two ingredients, sacrifice on the one hand and service on the other. Truly to love somebody is to sacrifice oneself in order to serve him or her. But Christians can never think about neighbor love, our love for our neighbor, without recalling what Jesus said about it in the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular in the sixth and last of the six so-called antitheses. Each antithesis in the sermon begins, you'll remember, you have heard that it was said by or to the men of old. And on this occasion in Matthew 5, we read this, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now I hope very much that all of us here know our scriptures well enough and uh, are clear enough in our thinking to know that that is a scandalous misinterpretation and distortion of scripture. What the law actually said was love your neighbor as yourself. But the scribes applied their casuistry to this command and then said to themselves, so it's my neighbor, is it, that I am to love? Well, who then is my neighbor that I'm under obligation to love? Why, of course, the scribes went on. It's my neighbor is my fellow Jew, my co-religionist. So if the law says love your neighbor as yourself it's and, and only my neighbor, then it's tantamount to saying that I may hate my enemy if it's only my neighbor that I am to love. But Jesus rejected this scribal casuistry. He said in effect that we have no liberty to narrow down the definition of neighbor. On the contrary, in the, in the vocabulary of God, my neighbor includes my enemy. So Jesus went on, I say to you, love your enemies. Your enemies are included among your neighbors. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then, if you do that, he goes on, 
you will be children of your heavenly Father. Because his love is unconditional. He makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So our love must be all-embracing, just as his love is. To love the neighbor includes the love for our enemy. Well, I think you'll be with me so far that my text will include we love God and we love our neighbor. But is that all? Is there possibly a third object of our love? Yes, many people say there is. And that is thirdly, we love ourselves. We don't, but we do, if you understand. A few years ago, I think the movement peaked in the 1970s. It became very popular to teach that we must love not only our neighbor, but we must love ourselves. And a whole new literature emerged. Many books were written on that subject in those days. A book called Love Yourself, another called Celebrate Yourself, another called The Art of Learning to Love Oneself, another called The Cult of Self-Worship, and so it went on. Now this teaching arose in secular schools of psychology and was adopted by some Christians whose upbringing had taught them, quite mistakenly, but had taught them to despise themselves and to hate themselves, which was always wrong. But the way you know to remedy one extreme of self-hatred is not to go to the opposite extreme of self-love, but to find a biblical balance. Now, I've no wish to tread on anybody's theological corns this morning. I've no wish to hurt anybody if you have adopted yourself this particular teaching. But I do take the liberty of inviting you for your thinking to consider that there are three reasons why to love myself is not a biblical position. The first is the lesson from grammar. The second commandment that Jesus gave is not a command to love both my neighbor and myself. It is a command to love my neighbor as, in fact, being fallen and sinful, I do love myself, but shouldn't. Besides, Jesus said the first and great commandment is to love the Lord our God. The second is like unto us, and he did not go on in the enumeration. There is a first and a second, but not a third. So there is grammar. Then I move on, secondly, to linguistics. The verb to love, the verb agapeo, to love, means, as we've seen, to sacrifice ourselves in the service of another. So the concept of sacrificing myself in order to serve myself is really a nonsense. This kind of love cannot be self-directed. And then thirdly, there is theology. I move on from grammar and language to theology. Self-love is, in, according to the New Testament, precisely what the Bible means by sin. The characteristics of the last days 
That is of the period between the first and the second comings of Christ, a period in which we find ourselves now. The characteristics of the last days, according to 2 Timothy 3, are that men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, instead of lovers of God. Well, let me move on from that subject. I hope it hasn't uh, offended anybody unnecessarily. I've tried to be gentle in what I've said about self-love. Now, if we're not called to love ourselves, what kind of self-esteem is legitimate? Or how can we develop a balanced self-image? Well, in answer to those important questions, we need to remember that we human beings are mixed-up kids. We are a mixture of good and evil, and we are a mixture of dignity and depravity. On the one hand, God created us in his own image and likeness, and so has given us a unique dignity as the children of creation of God. But on the other hand, we are fallen creatures with a twist of self-centeredness in our nature. So, whatever we recognize in ourselves as being due to God's creation and our dignity, we must gladly and gratefully affirm. We affirm everything in ourselves that is derived from God's creation. But whatever we recognize in ourselves as due to the fall rather than the creation, we are to deny and to repudiate. Jesus told us to deny ourselves. He didn't mean that we should deny everything in ourselves, but everything that is evil and depraved. So a balanced self-image in place of loving ourselves is a combination of self-affirmation and self-denial so that we learn to affirm our true self and to deny our false self. So far then, we've thought about we love. We love God, we love our neighbor, but not ourselves. Is there still no third object of our love which may be distinguished from our loving our neighbor? Yes, I think there is. Namely, that we are to love each other in the unique family of God. Jesus himself spoke of this kind of love, of loving one another, in the upper room discourse. For example, in John's Gospel, chapter 13, verses verses 34 and 35. A new commandment, he said, I give unto you, and the new commandment is, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everybody will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus himself called this one another love, this reciprocal love, a new commandment. And if it was a new commandment, it is evidently not just the second commandment to love our neighbor. It's something else. So what is new about the new commandment? Well, it is surely the standard of love which he lays down, which is not now love for our neighbor as we love ourselves, 
but to love each other as he loved us. Not self-love now, but Christ's love is to be the standard of our living. Well, the Apostle John takes this up in our chapter, 1 John 4, and I would like to ask you again to turn to it if you, or open your Bible if you have it there. John takes up this teaching on reciprocal love in his letter. Three times, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. I want to focus, if I may, for a few minutes on that third one, verse 12. Nobody has ever seen God. The invisibility of God, as we thought briefly the other day, has always been a problem. It was a problem to Israel in the Old Testament because the surrounding pagan nations had visible gods. But Israel worshipped an invisible god, which struck the pagans as a huge joke. They teased Israel. They said to the Israelites, you say you worship God. Where is he? We can't see him. Come to our temples and we'll show you our gods. They have eyes and ears and noses and feet and hands. They're visible. But where is your God? We can't see him. Ha, ha, ha. And they laughed at Israel as actually worshipping an invisible God. So we read uh, several times in the Old Testament, especially in one or two Psalms and in the prophets, where Israel cried out to Yahweh, Lord, why should the heathen say, where is now your God? Rend the heavens, come down, show yourself, make yourself visible so that we may worship you, and so on. Now this problem of the invisible God, the invisible nature of God, is not only to be found in the Old Testament, but it's a problem still today. You and I have been brought up in a scientific culture. We've been brought up to not to believe in anything that we cannot see. So how has God solved the problem of our own invisibility? Well, the first answer is given in John's Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 18. It begins, nobody has ever seen God. Exactly the same formula. Nobody has ever seen God. But now, uh, John continues in a different way. He has said, nobody has ever seen God, the only begotten of the Father. He has made him known. So Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Well, that's wonderful, people say today, but it happened two millennia ago. Is there no way by which the invisible God can make himself visible today? And the answer is, yes, indeed, there is, as we learn in the first epistle of John, chapter 4 and verse 12. Nobody's ever seen God Exactly the same words, but now John continues differently. In the gospel, he said, it's the only son who's made him known. In the epistle, he says, if we love one another, God's love is perfected in us and God dwells in us. I myself believe 
that this is one of the most breathtaking verses in the whole of the New Testament. That the invisible God who once made himself visible in Christ now makes himself visible in Christians if we love one another. And this truth is vital to our evangelism. We cannot preach a gospel of love with any degree of integrity if we don't embody our own message. We need to look like what we are talking about and especially to be a community of love. So let me recapitulate and conclude. We love because he first loved us. We love God, we love our neighbor, we love each other, all because he loved us first. His love is the source and the standard of our love. Let me conclude. We come to the end of our little mini-series on faith, hope, and love. These three remain, Paul writes, or as the Revised English Bible puts it, these three last or will last forever. Faith will last in the sense that we will go on enjoying the promises of God which we have by then inherited. Hope will last because we will go on exploring the depths of the infinite being of God. Hope will never come to an end because we shall never come to the end of God. He will continue forever, the object of our exploration and love. Then love will last because God is love and we will go on loving and being loved throughout eternity. So great and lasting are these three, but the greatest of the three is love. Let us pray. Faith, hope, love. Let us ask ourselves whether these three theological virtues characterize our Christian lives. We ask your forgiveness, Heavenly Father, that in these ways and in others, we fall short of what you mean us to be. We ask for your forgiveness and your cleansing. And as we look into the future, we pray that increasingly we may be characterized by faith, hope, and love, especially love. We ask it for the glory of your great name. Amen. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.